Welcome to Pushback, I'm Aaron Maté. The Trump administration's more than year-long coup attempt in Venezuela has failed to overthrow President Nicolas Maduro, and now facing increased global calls to lift its crippling murderous sanctions on Venezuela during the coronavirus pandemic, the White House has unveiled a new approach. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo calls it the, quote, framework for a peaceful democratic transition in Venezuela. Broadly speaking, it would uh, put the elected members of the National Assembly representing both sides would create a, an acceptable council of state to serve as the transitional government until presidential and National Assembly elections could be held, we hope, within six to 12 months. The president of the transitional government would not be able to run for president in those elections. Both uh, Nicolas Maduro and Juan Guaido would accept the Council of State as the sole executive during this transitional period. If the conditions of the framework are met, including the departure of foreign security forces and elections deemed free and fair by international observers, then all remaining U.S. sanctions would be lifted. Pompeo also threatened to increase sanctions on Venezuela unless Maduro steps down. This so-called framework for democracy comes days after the Trump administration ramped up its coup effort in Venezuela with narco charges and multi-million dollar bounties against Maduro and other top Venezuelan officials. The message from Washington is clear. This is not a plan for transition, but for submission. Joining me now is Leonardo Flores, Latin American policy expert and campaigner with Code Pink. Leo, welcome to Pushback. What is your reaction to this so-called democratic transition plan from Pompeo? Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Aaron. Uh, my reaction really is bewilderment. <laughs> it's because a few days ago, yeah, as we, you just said, the D Department of Justice unveiled indictments against Maduro and 13 other uh, former and current government officials and members of the military, uh, immediately ramping up the pressure. And then this transition proposal seems to be kind of a step back. Um, it's first of all, it's it's a total non-starter. It's not going to go anywhere. It wasn't negotiated with anyone in Venezuela on the side of the government. Uh, it's a plan that supposedly came from Juan Guaido in part, but really it's most it's been uh, designed in the State Department itself. The thinking here in the White House, what do you think it is? Um, they've been trying now for more than a year to overthrow Maduro. They've tried to spark some military uprisings. It hasn't worked. Now they shifted to this bounty last week on Maduro's head. What do you think is the strategy going on inside Washington? What are they hoping to achieve with these narco uh, charges against Maduro and now this new so-called plan? Well, in a sense, they're really trying to throw everything at the wall and then see what sticks. But particularly with this plan, I think it's to alleviate the pressure that's coming on them due to the sanctions. We've seen everyone from the UN to the EU to um, other multilateral organizations and NGOs call for a lifting of the sanctions. We're seeing a letter being uh, sent around the Senate that has at least 11 people who signed on, led, led by Senator Chris Murphy, calling for a humanitarian uh, relief uh, for Venezuela and Iran lifting the sanctions during this pandemic. And so I think maybe that's getting to the Trump administration. And this is kind of their their way of sending some sort of olive branch to these more moderate fact factors in in Washington. But, you know, it's it's not it's not a serious proposal. What I think has been overlooked in the discussion of all this is that 
in trying to install Guaido, the Trump administration has portrayed this picture where it's basically Maduro versus Guaido, and there's no one in between. But meanwhile, there have been negotiations between Maduro and elements of the Venezuelan opposition, just not the one that includes uh, Guaido's faction. Can you talk about this and how it's been ignored? Sure. So the last time that Guaido participated in negotiations, seriously, his faction, I mean, was in August 2019. And those talks were undermined when the Trump administration imposed what the Wall Street Journal called an economic embargo. Uh, they really ramped up the sanctions on August 5th. After that, about a month later, uh, Nicolas Maduro and the Venezuelan government began negotiating with more moderate sector, sectors of, of the political opposition who kind of, who, who, sectors who that really want to participate in democracy and, and you know, engage in politics and aren't looking for regime change. And coincidentally, those months of 2019, I'm talking about September, October, and November, they were the most stable months in a really kind of crazy year for Venezuela that started off with this attempted coup by the Trump administration in Juan Guaido. Now, those uh, negotiations are still ongoing. There's ongoing dialogue. Uh, they resulted in, uh, in early January with uh, a new election for the president of the National Assembly. Uh, this new president of the National Assembly is from the same or was from the same party as Juan Guaido. Uh, I think he was expelled from that party, uh, but I'd have to check up on that, to be honest. And what we're seeing is that, you know, Juan Guaido got kind of pushed out and his whole these extremist opposition sectors got pushed out a bit from these uh, attempts at negotiation. So this is their kind of their way back in, so to speak. So if you could address someone who might look at this plan now from Pompeo and the way Pompeo is framing it is that, you know, the U.S. has no preference for who leads Venezuela aside from Maduro. We want him gone. In fact, Pompeo said as much today. Let me play you a clip. We have. We, we've, we've made clear uh, all along uh, that Nicolas Maduro will never again govern Venezuela. Uh, and... Uh, that, that, that hasn't changed. So that's Mike Pompeo. Well, first of all, let me just ask you to respond to uh, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State of the United States, declaring that the leader of another country will never govern there again. Oh, I mean, it's completely ridiculous. Maduro has been governing uh, since 2013, and he's been governing throughout this whole time that the State Department has been trying to portray the Venezuelan government as non-existent and really that and, and they're trying to, you know, force Juan Guaido as the so-called interim president. Uh, but it, what's really curious to me is that there's contradictions within the own White House, right? So I, that's a very interesting Pompeo quote. But earlier today, uh, Elliot Abrams, who's the special representative to, for Venezuela for the Trump administration, uh, he told Reuters that while Maduro would have to step aside, and this is a direct quote, the plan did not call for him to be forced into exile, and he even suggested that he could theoretically run in the election. So Abrams is saying, hey, maybe Maduro can run. Pompeo is saying Maduro is never again going to be allowed to govern. There's clear disconnect. It's kind of indicative of what we've seen in the White House since Trump came to office with, uh, you know, lack of communication between the different uh, uh, sectors of the executive branch. Let's say that Abrams, what he suggests is the proposal that the U.S. is putting forward, then somebody might look at that and say, well, listen, you know, the U.S. shouldn't be involved in Venezuela, but it is. And the fact is that right now they're putting forward this plan where they're offering to uh, relieve these crippling murderous sanctions if Venezuela just agrees to this new transition and hold new elections. Uh, why not just abide by that to help ease the suffering of Venezuela? 
Well, Venezuela has a constitution. I mean, that's the biggest thing that we're, we have to talk about. Venezuela is a sovereign country that has a constitution and then is guided by that constitution. And so the Trump administration used that constitution and made these kind of quasi-legal arguments to say that Juan Guaido was actually the real president because Maduro was not in not officially in power. And now they're turning around and saying, well, you know what, forget that constitution and let's talk about this whole uh, trans democratic transition framework that doesn't that has no constitutional basis in Venezuela at all. But what I really like, I think we really have to emphasize is that if the Venezuelan government decided to hold new elections, new presidential elections after coming to an agreement with the opposition, they're well within their rights. But this this is this plan is being imposed from abroad. It lacks all sorts of any sort of popular support within Venezuela. And it's in that regard, it's a non-starter. And just to stress this point, I do think that holding new elections that has been under discussion in Maduro's negotiations with the opposition, right? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, first of all, there have to be new elections, new parliamentary elections, because those are due this year. And after those parliamentary elections, there is a possibility that you might have new presidential elections in Venezuela. But there's no way that those presidential elections can be carried out while Venezuela is under sanctions by the U.S. and the EU, particularly by the U.S. sanctions. Uh, this is reminiscent of uh, Nicaragua in the 90s when the Nicaraguan people were faced with the choice of either of, they had an election and the U.S. government said that if the FSLN wins, uh, the sanctions will continue. But if the opposition wins, then the sanctions will be lifted. Let me play for you a clip on that front. Uh, this is John Stockwell. He's a former CIA officer. And he was describing this tactic the U.S. uses of basically making countries like Nicaragua submit to U.S. demands or starve. The point is to put pressure on the targeted government by ripping apart the social and economic fabric of the country. Now that's words, you know, social and economic fabric. That means making the people suffer as much as you can until the country plunges into chaos, until at some point you can step in and impose your choice of governments on that country. So that's a former CIA officer uh, describing the U.S. approach to countries like Nicaragua and Venezuela. Leo, what's your sense, though, of how, where the Venezuelan people are at? They've been suffering for a long time now under these sanctions. There was just a poll uh, that was shared by the opposition uh, economist Francisco Rodriguez pointing out that two-thirds of Venezuelans uh, say that U.S. sanctions are causing huge misery inside their country. What is your sense of where the electorate is at inside Venezuela, the people? Are they at the point where they're willing to, to give up, to submit to U.S. demands, whatever they are, in return for some relief from this blockade? No, I wouldn't say they are. I mean, we have to be clear, though. Venezuela is a very polarized country. So we have this sector that votes with the opposition that would likely, a great, good majority of it or a good percentage of it, would likely welcome Pompeo's plan. But then you have the Chavistas, which represent at least 40% of the electorate, uh, and, and, and of all eligible voters, and they would absolutely reject this plan. It's absolutely true, though, that the sanctions have completely destroyed the economic fabric of Venezuela. But one of the reasons that Venezuela has been able to overcome these, the pressure from the United States is due to the social fabric and due to the organizing at the community level and due to the, the organizing that the government uh, enables from above. Okay, so you mentioned the Venezuelan electorate. So let me ask you quick, quickly about this, because... A huge talking point that the administration uses, and it's parroted across the political establishment, even Democrats who oppose the sanctions, 
parrot this talking point, which is that Maduro is not a legitimately elected leader and they point to alleged fraud in the 2018 Venezuelan elections. Can you, I know it's complicated, but can you give us the simplest case for why this talking point is false? Right. So there's actually no evidence that there was fraud. And really, the arguments that there were fraud only come from the United States. What happened in the 2018 elections was the sectors of the opposition decided to boycott the election. And they boycotted at the direction or under the instructions of the State Department. In early 2018, there was there was dialogue between the government and the opposition. The two sides were very close to signing an agreement. They actually had an agreement written down. Uh, they, they, they were negotiating the Dominican Republic. They went back to Venezuela for one week to to consult with the various parties involved. During that interim week, then Secretary of State Rex Tillerson threatened oil embargo, and he also suggested that if the military were to overthrow Maduro, that this move would be welcomed by the United States. Also during that week, the State Department said that they would not recognize any elections in 2018, uh, that Maduro had to go first before there were elections. And so as a result of that, that's what leads to these kind of claims of fraud that because of this opposition boycott, but really there were there was no fraud. The parties that did participate participated fully. There were international observers. There was a vote that was audited, and Maduro won in a landslide election. Maduro received over six million votes, and there were even if I have the history correctly, the candidate Emery Falcone, the main opposition candidate who ran, he was even threatened with U.S. sanctions if he kept participating in the elections. That's right. And not only was Henry Falcón threatened with sanctions, but so was Henry Ramos Alup, who is the leader of the Acción Democrática or Democratic Action Party. This is one of the bigger opposition parties. It's slightly more moderate than Juan Guaidó's party. But he said, I think it was in March of 2019, uh, excuse me, 2018, he said he asked, he pondered, why would I run if the U.S. wouldn't, isn't going to recognize my victory? And so the U.S. made it clear that even if an opposition leader had won, that they were not going to recognize it because it wasn't going to be the opposition leader that they wanted. So let me ask you about these narco ter- uh, these narco trafficking charges that have been unveiled against Maduro and other top officials. The allegation, and maybe you can explain it for us because it's, it's pretty bewildering, is that Maduro and other top Venezuelan officials have been engaged in a criminal conspiracy to flood the U.S. with drugs going back many years? Yeah, that's correct. And so the DOJ talks about a plan or a plot to flood the U.S. with cocaine since 1999. Uh, Maduro wasn't even in power in 1999. In 1999, he was a member of the National Constituent Assembly and he was helping to draft Venezuela's constitution. So one thing that makes it that one of the interpretations of these accusations in Venezuela is that these aren't accusations against individuals. It's really an accusation against the entire Bolivarian revolution. But and going a little bit deeper, well, this plot uh, claim by the DOJ is patently ridiculous. I mean, the U.S. government's own statistics show that over 90 percent of the cocaine in the United States is either from Colombia or, or has traveled through Colombia. The same statistics show that less than 7% of the cocaine in the United States has transited through Venezuela at some point. Venezuela doesn't produce coca, the coca leaf, it doesn't produce co- and it doesn't produce cocaine, uh, whereas Colombia is the biggest uh, producer of both coca and cocaine in the entire world. Uh, it's clear that these are accusations, these charges are completely, uh, they're, they're politically motivated. And they're not based on any sort of reality. If they were, then really the conspiracy to flood the United States with cocaine 
And we, you'd have to look at the president of Colombia and the prior president, uh, Albert Uribe, and really the, kind of the entire Colombian social structure, which enables these uh, narco paramilitaries to control their society and to export cocaine. And you've written about for the Gray Zone a piece that explains that one consequence of this indictment is that it's triggered a confession, a very serious confession, by one of the, the people charged of a violent U.S.-backed plot against Maduro. Can you explain what happened there? Right. So one of the people indicted, his name is Cliver Alcala. He was a former member of the military. He used to be very close to Chavismo. Uh, he flipped to the opposition in 2016. And since 2017, give or take, he's been involved in various plots, coup attempts and attempted terror plots uh, in Venezuela. He's been linked to them. And so immediately after the DOJ press conference last week that indicted uh, this Mr. Alcala, he posted some videos on Twitter and other social media confessing to a terror plot in Venezuela from about a week and a half ago in which, uh, so a bit of backstory, the Colombian police seized 26 high-powered rifles and several other uh, you know, weapons of war and, and war military equipment. Uh, Alcala claimed that the weapons were his, that they were bought using money from Juan Guaido, that he and Juan Guaido had entered into a contract for the weapons, that the weapons were going to be used to help overthrow the Venezuelan government by causing a terror plot and by targeted assassinations of Chavista leaders. Uh, Alcala then the, uh, now has been turned over to U.S. authorities. Uh, it's unclear what's going to happen with him, but what is clear is that he implicated not just Juan Guaido in this terror plot, terror plot but U.S. advisors. He claimed he, he met with U.S. advisors on at least seven different occasions. And just to put a fine point on this, so he says that Guaido paid him money for this plot. And so those weapons that were seized in Colombia were paid for by Guaido and then presumably the U.S., which backs up Guaido and is actually using money uh, initially intended for Central American aid to pay for Guaido and his fellow coup plotters. Yeah, that's right. The money wasn't necessarily going to Alcala directly. It was going to the weapons that Alcala purchased. And this is the, and Juan Guaido's only source of financing is the U.S. government, which basically is us U.S. taxpayers. So finally, as part of its uh, coup effort in Venezuela, the U.S. has been putting heavy pressure on anybody uh, engaged in business with Venezuela. Uh, and that's included sanctioning Russia's uh, state oil company, Rosneft. Uh, Rosneft was recently forced to basically divest its holdings in Venezuela and then transfer it to another Russian government, in fact, a wholly Russian government-owned company. Will this be enough to keep Venezuela afloat? Or do you think that the power of the U.S. is just too strong here? I think... I think it would be enough under slightly different circumstances, but the fact is that oil is plummeting right now. And so it's unclear what's happening with the uh, Venezuelan government's finances. Uh, I don't think that the Venezuelan government is going to fall due to financing. Uh, I think in that sense, uh, you know, China and Russia have a lot invested in Venezuela and Venezuela has other means of uh, securing financing, whether it's through gold or uh, rare earth minerals. But, you know, it is does make the situation much more difficult, and it has led to gasoline shortages currently in Venezuela. And finally, in terms of what can be done here in the U.S., you mentioned that there is now increased talk from Congress, increased pushback from Congress, asking them to not suspend the sanctions entirely, but simply pause them 
during the coronavirus pandemic, which I suppose is better than nothing. But as we are dealing now with, you know, economic troubles of our own here at home, what do you think can be done right now to push back on the Trump administration's coup effort and to try to uh, stop uh, the uh, regime change plot in Venezuela and drop the sanctions? Well, I think for starters, the issue of Venezuela has become incredibly toxic in mainstream politics. So if you take any sort of position that's deemed friendly to the Venezuelan government, even if it's actually not necessarily friendly to the government, like say humanitarian relief and sanctions, uh, you're immediately going to be kind of seen with distrust by certain elements of the political establishment. Uh, and so I think really it's what's most important is to highlight what the Trump administration has been doing to sabotage dialogue in Venezuela. Uh, if we're not for Trump, I think we would already have a political agreement in Venezuela and the country would be much more stable. Uh, but he's kind of enthralled to his financiers in Florida and to the Cuban-American lobby in Florida and rich Venezuelans in Florida. It all boils down to Florida, unfortunately. I think really that the best hope that Venezuela, the Venezuelan government has, is to hold out until after the November elections. Even if Trump is reelected, I think there opens up a possibility of, uh, of negotiations between the Trump administration and the Maduro government. Yeah, on that front, it doesn't inspire confidence that Joe Biden has fully embraced Trump's coup attempt and has recognized Juan Guaido as the president. But certainly, no matter what happens in November, will be a key date in all of this and many other issues, of course. Uh, Leo Flores, Latin American policy expert and campaigner with Code Pink, thanks very much. Thank you, Aaron.